Welcome to An Examined Education, a podcast from the Cambridge School, a classical Christian school in San Diego, California, where we examine an education that prepares students to think well, love rightly, and live wisely. Welcome back to An Examined Education. On today's episode, we get to talk with Doug Jones and talk all things poetry and uh, what poetry is all about, what it leads us to, and uh, how to recognize good poetry from bad. Stay tuned. You won't want to miss it. Hi, Doug. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with us today. Oh, very exciting to be here. Thank you. So we're going to talk about uh, kind of a specific area of literature would you call it an area of literature? Yes. I have like no idea what we're talking. I mean, I know what we're talking about today, but as far as like the content, uh, it's a lot of going to be a lot of me asking you questions. Um, so we're talking about poetry today. But before we get into that, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us why we're talking to you? All right. <laughs> um, Doug Jones and uh, teach literature. I'm the chair of literature here at uh, uh, the Cambridge School. I uh, teach 7th grade poetry and 10th uh, grade uh, literature, 12th grade literature. Uh, I've been working in poetry for 20 years or so. Started off in philosophy, did a master's in philosophy, and then had kids and realized how much more powerful fiction was. And so I wow. shifted in the uh, shifted toward poetry and creative writing and did an MFA in creative writing at the University of Idaho. Uh, learned a uh, tremendous amount there, but I'm uh, just a, a wannabe poet, probably better critic, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, tried over the years and submitted uh, poems, got some published. Um, oh, that's great. But uh, just fascinated with sort of the intricacies of how poetry is supposed to work. So I was saying... You know, as I was thinking through some of the questions to ask, I was like, well, as a kid, poetry is, you know, as long as it rhymes at the end, and then you get a little older and you're reading Shakespeare and now it's about the meter, right? The iambic pentameter or the, I'm sure there's a lot of meters, um, but can I ask what is poetry? Poetry? Is there a definition for what poetry is? Yeah. I mean, you'll get people fighting over this, okay. but, but yeah, I have to <laughs> sort stay of on this side. land on one to, <laughs> to help my students. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I see three, three parts uh, to it. Well, well, one way to think about poetry is that it's like a portal. Okay. Right? It's a portal into the real world. Okay, that's what we're trying to do. So most much of our day-to-day -day lives are, are, are fictional or they're petty or they just mm -hmm. repeat like the book of Ecclesiastes warns us about. And, and poetry is supposed to sort of be this doorway into the real world, right? You're not escaping the world. You're okay. trying to get to something deep and profound, but you use simple ways of getting through that portal. So, so poems sort of work like medieval icons, right? Mm. They, they would like say live through an icon to get to the presence of God. And, and I think poetry is, is imitating that, that process. And all the arts do one way or another, but poems are supposed to be these little uh, portals. So yeah, I, I characterize poetry as it's, it's stylized language, first okay. of all. Okay. And that's where the rhyme or the meter or anything comes right. in. But then it's also incantational, incantational. It's, in a, it's like a magical spell. Um, and, uh, and if you think about spells in Harry Potter or in magic, they always have this sort of strange rhythm to them. And I think poetry is trying to imitate hmm. magical spells from the ancient world, okay. really. But the real, the real heart of the definition that's common to a lot of poets is that poetry is trying to use this kind of stylized incantational language to say the unsayable. 
Hmm. Right. Whereas prose wants to say the sayable. A history class is saying the sayable. Right. Science, so forth. And 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 I usually give my students a, a pie chart. Right. Okay. And there's a very thin sliver. And I want to suggest that um, that thin sliver is the sayable. That's what law and history and and all the rest of it is the unsayable stuff. That's human experience. That's God. That's mm-hmm. love and hatred. All these things that make us human. And poetry is trying to be a portal to the unsayable, right? And and you right. can't really say the unsayable, so you just kind right. of point to it and hint at it. And that's what poetry at its best is trying to uh, do. Wow. Wow, that's incredible to think about. And seventh graders eat this up. Seventh yeah. graders like this. I'm sort of eating stuff. it up right now. <laughs> I'm more and more like a seventh grader every day. Because I mean, part of the, the worry is that is this just decorative language? Right. I mean, is this yeah. just fancy are language? Violets are blue. I mean, why go through all these, you know, rhymes and and meters if it's just doing what prose can do simpler? Hmm. More simply. And and the thought here is, no, we're, we've got a different subject matter, right? We're trying to capture something that, that those other subjects can't capture. Right. And do you think that's the main difference between that and other writing? Are there other differences between poetry and other types of writing? Yeah, I think at least those those three things, those two right. things. It, magical, right? Prose doesn't usually right. attempt to be magical. And... Um, and again, you can get prose attempting to say the unsayable, but they go about it, I mean, from a poet's angle, in a right. clumsy, wordy way. Um, mm-hmm. Poets are trying to use the least amount of words, generally, mm-hmm. not, not mm-hmm. all poets, the least amount of words to say the most. Wow. Yeah. And so you you did mention earlier that it's like uh, the other arts in trying to get that portal to a reality. How is it yeah. different, though, than from the other other arts trying to find yeah. that? Um, Here's a characterization of what the arts are supposed to do, right? So this is just a reflection on sort of Christian theology. I mean, Mm. the main artist is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we see in sort of Christian history is especially the incarnation, right? God sort of speaking to us through the Son, the Father speaking to us through Mm. the Son. And there's a lot of body involved in, in that. And so one characterization of maybe what all the arts are trying to do from a Christian angle is to... It's again a three-part thing. Capture the big story Hmm. in a bit of matter to move a body, right? So whatever the big story is, what is it to be human? What is Hmm. it to imitate God? What is it? What is guilt? What is celebration? All those things. Those are the big stories of being human. We're trying to grab those unsayable sort of things Mm -hmm. and then put it in some matter. So all the arts, right? I mean, musicians use pitches, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, if you're doing a symphony, you're doing the same thing, but you're using sound to try to capture the big story, but your matter are sound waves. And, you know, a bronze sculptor is using bronze to do that or marble. Uh, poets, we use these little black marks, hmm. right? Little black marks that um, that's the matter that we're interested in. And novelists, of course, do that too. Um, but they're doing something. They're very big on either narrative or um, uh, trying to do it by different means than sort of incantational uh, language. But the big goal for all of them is to move a body, hmm. right? We're trying mm-hmm. to move the audience. And that's where there's a lot of failure in the arts, right? You might have this big story. You might be really technically proficient in your mat- material, but the audience doesn't care. The yeah. audience is bored. And there's a lot yeah. of bad poetry, a lot of bad novels, a lot of bad photographs. And the trick is, how do you get that really good photograph mm-hmm. right at the perfect moment? How do you get that good 
poem right at the perfect moment that people sort of take a breath and realize, okay, this, this is a great place to live. It's great to be human. So I guess that is the next question then. What is, what is good poetry? How do you differentiate between good and bad poetry? And yeah, is it all subjective to the listener? Yeah, well, or to again, the author, even? I, I would hope not. I mean, certainly poets yeah. don't think so, because they spend a lot of time. I had one prof tell me once that poets spend more time on precise language than engineers do in mathematics, mm. right? Um, you just keep reworking these things over, over, and over. So, yeah, you'll get people disagreeing on this. I mean, there's one famous line. Emily Dickinson has this great line that would be well known by poetry teachers. If I feel, she said, if I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. Hmm. So if I feel like mm. something has happened radically, I mm -hmm. would say that's good poetry. There's got to be sort of gradation. There's going to be decent poetry mm -hmm. that doesn't take the top of your head off. But it should feel like that with some poems, right? Mm. And so if that's sort of the aim you're, you're going for, um, then she's a good uh, guide in that. Another thing is with all the arts, but with poetry especially, I think it'd be nice if your audience forgot that they were listening or reading a poem, mm. right? It's supposed to be transport you, portal you mm -hmm. into this other world so you forget, oh, I'm reading a piece of art. If your attention is drawn to the art, then it sort of pops the bubble, mm. the fun, right? And it's like if you're watching a film and you realize, oh, those are really good camera moves. Well, you're right. missing yeah. the bubbles popped. You're, you, you know, that's good for, you know, film technicians, but not for storytelling. Um, and if you realize you're in a symphony, it's nice to forget. Oh, that's what the artist would like, that you forget that you're in this other world. And the poet wants you to forget that uh, too. So, um, but sort of the key traits that, uh, you know, we work on, and these aren't unique uh, to me, but we talk about um, a good poem will have energy, poetic mm -hmm. energy. Uh, there's some great uh, lines. Uh, Miroslav Holub uh, once said, I'm reading here, poetry is energy. It is an energy storing and an energy releasing device. William Carlos Williams says a poem is a small or large machine made of words. And it's got these explosions of wow. linguistic energy. And again, yeah. I don't think prose writers think about putting energy no. in a small yeah. place. They've got time to fill pages. <laughs> um and, and there are four traits that, that tend to stand out to try to identify a good poem. Uh, one is surprising sensations, right? We're dealing with bodies and mm -hmm. we're trying to put things in matter, right? So like mm -hmm. the incarnation, but you want to surprise, right? You want to use unexpected details of the five senses. So usually at the beginning of a poetry class, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how would you describe the taste of a kiwi or mm. uh, the taste of um, other, other things. Um, so you got to have surprising sensations. You want to be surprised. You want to take, try to take the top of the head off through <laughs> various means. And then it's got to have some mesmerizing features. That's the rhythm, the music, maybe the, the rhyme, mm -hmm. but something that feels meditative, incantational, but not in your face, right? Too much rhyme in your face. You realize, oh, I'm reading a very sing-song poem, and that kills it. So American poets especially, and following English poets, have tried to move away from rhyme because it doesn't work that great in English. Mm -hmm. It works great in Italian, but in English, <laughs> not so much. And then you need some tensions, right? Some, some things that don't normally fit together, some contrast, visual things, psychological things. And then you need some emotional pressure, right? It's got to be about something profound, the big mm -hmm. story, joy, obsession, doubt, skepticism, 
uh, death, you know, all those mm-hmm. things in there. So those are four big things, but it's hard now to, it takes practice to try to apply them. In classrooms, what I do is like, I'll take uh, a passage from uh, a playwright in Shakespeare's time, right? Thomas Kidd or somebody, and put a passage of his talking to a nephew next to a passage of, of Hamlet, let's say. And you ask the students, you know, which has more poetic energy? And it must have been really sad living within that time if you were a competitor to Shakespeare because his language is just full of energy and the other guys are just sort of doing prose with some rhyme or something like that. And so you have to look at it sort of line by line uh, to pull that out. But students can recognize, oh, this Mm. has tension and good details and this is surprising. And Shakespeare's always like that. And other good poets do the same. What kind of things are poets moving the subject toward? That makes sense? Yeah, no. Okay. I think on the simplest level, it can be, you know, sort of a celebration of being human, celebration of just being here. There are a lot of mm-hmm. poems just about tomatoes or about ice cream or something. And it's like, wow, it is really cool to be human. Mm-hmm. And it's that reminder because we get into our cubicles and go day by day and you forget. It's, you know, it seems like it's not fun to be human, but poetry says, no, the reality, it's wild to be human. It can yes. be ugly. It can be beautiful. And here's that reminder of that, trying to pull you into that real world and out of our day-to-day fictions. Uh, poems can also um, move us to lament. Hmm. You sort of realize, you see something that's you know described and you realize how deeply ugly this aspect of being a human is, you know, some sort of injustice or um, pointlessness, you know, there. And it has to remind us of that, sort of like the book of Ecclesiastes. There's the joy and there's mm-hmm. also the... the uh, injustice and so forth. Those are the two biggies that almost often you can ask, is this moving me to rejoice or lament? Mm-hmm. So what what else, I guess, could be gained for the, the reader through spending time in poetry? How does it impact a, a person? It, it can be thought of, some think of it as a form of therapy, right? Mm. Less expensive therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you can you have books of poetry by people that have been through certain phases of life or certain experiences and and you can sort of walk through that with them and sort of work through either grief or joy uh, so all the arts are a kind of therapy in that in that way so it certainly uh, does that um, it's it's can also be a training in in beauty and ugliness you know mm. sort of increasing our ability to identify good arts and, and bad art. You could start in any of the arts, photography, film, poetry, and that'll help you, I think, judge in the other arts. Poetry is not something that I typically read. So if I wanted to incorporate that and have the portal into reality, where where do I begin? What, what should I read? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, I mean, I, I think especially if, if someone's looking to get in, it needs to be in, in our own language, right? That's why it's, yeah. it's, that's why it's hard to tell people to start with sort of the older poets or previous centuries. Those have their, their place. They're wonderful. Um, but sometimes they're hard to get into, right? Especially 19th century, 18th century. I, I'd recommend uh, to, to sort of see at least publicly approved contemporary poets 
uh, we have a, a poet laureate of the United States, right? Mm. And um, over the past 20, 20 years, 30 years now, I forget where started, um, you can buy a book of all their poems or a selection of their poems. And they've all been living and, and working in the past, you know, um, uh, in recent times. And so that's a great place to start. Just get the, the poet uh, laureates. Um, and there's some famous poets. I mean, Mary Oliver, who uh, was the grand lady of American, contemporary American poetry, um, she may not show up there, but uh, she stands out. But at least if you looked at the Poets Laureate, then um, you could start reading their stuff. And usually you can look up a name online. I mean, you could hmm. Google Poets Laureate mm -hmm. and just start working from the 1990s. Hey, I love this conversation so far. Um, we're just going to take a quick break right now. Welcome to Doug's Poetry Corner. Sit back, relax, and get ready to be swept away by the beauty of language. So I brought along a few uh, examples that I think uh, fit the characterization of uh, poetry that I gave. Stylized, incantatory language, which aims to say the unsayable. Uh, the first one is uh, Fireflies by Robert Wrigley, a great contemporary uh, poet, someone else to uh, hunt down. And he writes this, Now there are no fireflies. Once there were, and we caught them. Our white sweaters glinting in the dusk, chasing after children. They were like that, like children or the very old, doddering in slow flight, We'd charge any flash and wait at arm's length for another. And always there was. Once we kept them in an unwashed honey jar, two dozen snagged and flickering on the oozy sides. Carefully, we plucked them away and wrote with the smears of their phosphorescence our names on a stone wall. Then afterwards licked our fingers and they were sweet and golden. So this is a celebration poem, mm -hmm. right? It's celebrating, um, you know, being a kid, these magical mm -hmm. things in nature and sort of transporting you back to this moment in your childhood. Somebody reading that might think of other similar moments in their childhood, but it's great to be human that you can mm -hmm. do things like that. Um, but notice he uses in terms of poetic energy, really surprising sensations, uh, comparing them to children and to old people, mm -hmm. oozing. He gets to oozing. use the word phosphorescence <laughs> in, in a poem, which is really hard. And then of course, there's this surprising closing line, right? They licked their fingers, which is bug guts, really. And that sort of raises tension. And, and, and But they were sweet and golden, right? This, this glowing stuff is sweet and golden. And so that's just a killer closing line. And there's a mysterious opening line. Now there are no fireflies. Is he talking about the season? Is he talking about the environment? Whatever it is, it, it sort of hooks us, pulls us in and gives us this little uh, photograph, a series of photographs. So I think that's that's a great example. Uh, here's here's one by Ted Kuzer, who was a poet laureate as well. Um, and this one's more somber. Uh, so see how this one tries to enter, uh, create a picture in your own mind. Uh, a lot more understatement. This one's called Late Nights in Minnesota. At the end of a freight train rolling away, a hand swinging a lantern, the only lights left behind in the town are a bulb burning cold in the jail. 
and high in one house, a five-battery flashlight, pulling an old woman downstairs to the toilet among the red eyes of her cats. So this one, again, trying to say the unsayable. How do you capture mm. sort of the, what is it, desolation, loneliness? Just, it's not a bad thing necessarily, but just sort of the loneliness of, you know, the, the Midwest at times, right? And it's, it's using kind of, um, what, haunting images, right? The red eyes of the cats um, and, and kind of humorous, right? The five battery flashlight. It's kind of big and it looks like it's pulling the woman. But again, he's using, using all our senses, right? We've got a freight train, we've got lights and sort of enters our imagination, gives us the big picture, right? This one is just sort of a slice of America and uh, uses all these sort of sensory details uh, to do it. And there's a rhythm to it, right? In both these poems, there's sort of a mesmerized language uh, to it. We could go and look at, at how they uh, did that. But that's, those are sort of key things. Let's, uh, this is the current uh, poet laureate, Ada Limon. And uh, she wrote one overpass, right? Right about overpass. And this, this one is, is great for maybe seventh grade boys. Um, it's a little grim, gruesome. But uh, one of the things we tell uh, poetry students is that it shouldn't be about rainbows and bunnies and so forth, right? Well, the, the hard thing is to make something ugly beautiful. That's what we want them to do. Do a poem about flies, right? That's hard. But bunnies, too easy. So this is Ada Limon, Overpass. The road wasn't as hazardous then when I'd walk to the steel guardrail, lean my bendy girl body over and stare at the cold creek water. In a wet spring, the water'd run clear and high, minnows mouthing the sand and silt, a crawdad shadowed by the shore's long reeds. I could stare for hours, something always new in each watery wedge, a bottle top, a man's black boot, a toad. Once, a raccoon's carcass, half under the overpass, half out, slowly decayed over months. I'd check on him each day, watching until the white bones of his hand were totally skinless and seemed to reach out toward the sun as it hit the water, showing all five of his sweet tensile fingers still clinging. I don't think I worshipped him, his deadness, but I like the evidence of him, how it felt like a job to daily take note of his shifting into the sand. Again, right, she's using all these sensory details, like piling up photographs, taking us through this uh, story, and yet dealing with huge issues, death and childhood, and watching uh, things change and pass. Uh, excellent uh, poem there. Uh, let me try to sneak in one of my own wannabe poems here. <laughs> uh, this got published a few decades ago in California Quarterly, but I visited Tokyo once and I wanted to try to capture, you know, sort of the unsayable about a place. Um, it was, there was so much energy in Tokyo, but, you know, someone could write a novel about it. But I just wanted to try to capture it in a, in a poem. And this one's called August Tokyo. Waves of apartments buoying each other swell and dip to horizons, the skyscrapers point away. In the streets, walls of advertising in pale blue, tomato, and pink juxtapose browns framed in neon green. Stopped in traffic, we are dripping with heat. I stare out the car window at a pointed three-wheeled truck, at a line of vending machines, at a restaurant's black door showing delicately baked eel on rice. Everything 
Around us flows at high-speed wireless, pedestrians never touching, scooters and bicycles avoiding bumpers. Across the intersection, a young woman, in pressed business blues, blazer and unslit skirt, sits on her bicycle, her face egg-smooth, studying the currents, her hands on the handlebars in pure white gloves stretched tight. So there again, trying to use a lot of sensory details to try to, I mean, if you're doing a camera on this, you start big in terms of capturing the whole city, you work down to the street level, and then ultimately we come down to this single individual and those tight gloves I remember seeing there. And that just captured so much of the, the noise and excitement, but the tension that I felt in the street. Uh, this is a great one to end on, right? We describe poetry as a portal, a sort of a way to get into um, another world. And um, so that makes poems are also kind of prayers, right? They're mm. a portal way into it's like an icon. And so this is a very famous one by Mary Oliver, and I recommend your poetry uh, to her. This one actually sounds explicitly like a poem. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her, with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Very famous poem by Mary Oliver. It could sort of end things right there. But notice, it is this portal. She gives us something very concrete. She gives us this grasshopper doing these very intricate things. And it takes her to the big picture, prayer. She doesn't know what prayer is, but she knows how to observe. And then she wonders about what we'll do with our one wild and precious life. One of the best poems in American history. Okay, so is there then a difference between uh, hearing poetry um, or where, you know, where to start to read poetry and where I would start to start writing poetry? Oh, that's a great, great question. I, I, I do think it's, it's best uh, to start reading a lot of great poetry. And that's if you start with the Poets Laureate, that's a good, a good uh, place. But yeah, it does require, it seems like different parts of your brain to actually start writing it. In fact, that's what I've seen with, with some students. A lot of poetry classes are just learning how to classify poems and, and all those things are important and reading um, the, the old poems. But students really seem to come alive when they've got to be creative, right? Mm -hmm. And you're telling them you want them to be surprising and not, I don't want boring poems. I want something surprising. And that gives them added pressure, good pressure, I think. And, and they perform well uh, with that. Um, but certainly, yeah, reading as many good poems as you can. And again, like photography, probably 95% of poems are bad. Yeah. <laughs> right? They don't read. I mean, we're always aiming. And like 95% of photography is bad, right. too. So um, it's nice to have, you know, somebody curate 
uh, good poems and, and, and that sort of thing. But it, but it is difficult. But there are collections that attempt to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, then it, then it takes a, a course in sort of poetry writing techniques, really. Mm-hmm. And there are books that do this and, and they're all pretty good about the, the same. But it takes a lot of practice and a lot of willingness to fail, mm-hmm. right? Because we think that ourselves are, you know, embedded in this poem. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody criticizes it, we take it personally. But but that's one of the great things of workshops in, in creative writing programs is you've got to have everyone read it. And they say, you know, I just, this doesn't make sense. Or this is too personal. Poetry is supposed to be clear. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes people get to writing diaries so much that nobody understands the meaning except the poet. And that's not helpful. So try to get students to write about public, understandable things. And mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it takes takes a course. So here at the Cambridge School, we have a full rhetoric program stage, all of that. Um, how does poetry, wh- where does poetry and rhetoric meet or where are they intertwined maybe? Yeah, probably on the on the biggest front, if we were thinking of that sort of characterization I gave, that it's stylized in the cantatory language, which aims to say the unsayable, but it's also an art, right? It's trying to move a body. We could call that mm-hmm. persuasion, right? Mm-hmm. Poems are little right. arguments. They're little visual arguments most of the time. Sometimes they're written in previous centuries as intellectual arguments. I don't think those are as strong as a lot of uh, contemporary poetry, which tries to sort of argue by image, right? Argue by a series of photographs or argue by sensory details. But they're very much concerned with persuasion. And of course, rhetoric's interested in getting sort of the big ideas too. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll put it in a form of uh, uh, a form of matter. It might be, you know, a, a political speech or something like that. So I think they're very parallel. This is just a mm-hmm. kind of rhetoric, really, a subset of rhetoric. Uh, but it involves arguments and persuasion and trying to grab attention and all those things that rhetoric is interested in. Well, Doug, this has been Great and really, really interesting. I love it. I think I'm going to go look up the Poet Laureate for the U.S. of A. Anyway, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Thank you for listening to An Examined Education. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, reach out to the Advancement Office. Check out our website and schedule a tour at cambridgeclassical.org. Until next time... Think well, love rightly, and live wisely.